0: Well, uh, giving a a thumbs up or a thumbs down is probably not the most sophisticated rating system out there, um, but it is pretty effective. Um, A quick thumbs up will indicate a good thing. If it's a thumbs down, that's probably something to avoid. Um, There's a very helpful website that I look up occasionally. It's called Visual Unit, and it does lots of great illustrations uh, of things in the Bible. And one of my favourites is this one, uh, this chart where it gives all of the kings of God's people in Israel and Judah, it just rates them according to a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Or there is also a level where um, if they're kind of borderline, they just get a thumb going sideways. And uh, you kind of get that assessment as well in the books of one and two kings. There's normally some kind of assessment given given at the end of each uh, of the kings saying if they were good, if they followed in the footsteps of David, or if they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, um, I know it's probably a bit small to um, see that very clearly, um, but what you see is that throughout all of the kings of Israel, they all get a thumbs down, all of them, and there's only three in Judah uh, who get a positive. Uh, They are Asa, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And uh, as we've heard, today's passage here focuses on one of those who gets a big thumbs up, King Hezekiah. And uh, if you were here with us last week, we heard about an amazing act of faith by King Hezekiah as the Assyrian army arrived right at Jerusalem's doorstep. And remember what Hezekiah did? He entrusted himself to the Lord. He went into the temple of the Lord and he prayed. Um, He prayed a magnificent prayer and God answered his prayer in a miraculous manner. Way He protected and delivered his people. Um, In the book of 2 Kings, uh, this is what it says about Hezekiah. It says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. Now, in terms of uh, an assessment from the Old Testament, that, that's a big thumbs up. Um, that's about as good as it gets for any of the kings of God's people. And uh, for those of us who have been listening carefully to Isaiah, well, we have heard, haven't we, promises about a king to come. We've been told about a shoot who will grow from the stump of Jesse, one who will reign over God's, uh, as God's king over the nations, one who will rule over a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity for God's people. And so at this point uh, in Isaiah... Well, I think hopes are pretty high. Uh, Could Hezekiah be that king, that promised Messiah of God? Could he be the one that the world is waiting for? Well, as we come to chapters 38 and 39, that's really the big question that's in the background. All of the focus we notice today centres on this king, King Hezekiah. And uh, so as we consider uh, these chapters, here's what we'll see today. Uh, Firstly, we'll see a, a suffering king then a singing king, and it's all looking pretty good at that point. But after that, as we come into chapter 39, we begin to see a stumbling king. And I think this will help us to look forward to the better king that the world is looking for. So firstly, uh, take a look in your Bibles with me at chapter 38 and verse 1, where it begins by showing us this picture of a suffering king. It says, In those days, Hezekiah became ill. And was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Now, an important thing to notice here firstly is that opening phrase where it says, In those days. And the scholars point out that this is a deliberately vague way of talking about the time when this event happened, because, uh, and that's because what we discover is that what what's described here in chapters thirty-eight and thirty-nine, these events actually took place before the events that we looked at last week in chapters thirty-six and thirty-seven. Now I know that's a bit odd, uh, but that but uh, chapters thirty-eight and thirty-nine they take place. Uh, before um, 36 and 37. And and one place that uh, we see this made clear to us is in verse 6 of chapter 38, where God says this. He says, And I will deliver you from this city, from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. So that's looking forward, but that's the event that we heard about last week. Um, We've already been told all about that. And so what's going on here now is that this is kind of like a flashback to an earlier time. And and probably the reason why it's out of chronological order like that is so that our focus is now all about thinking about this king, King Hezekiah. And to consider, well, what is he like? And to consider, maybe, is he the Messiah that Isaiah has been speaking about? And certainly that's the effect that it has for us. It, It moves our focus away from the events of wars between nations and international crises to bring our focus to something much more intimate, much more private. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. So it's not an international crisis like we think about last week, but it's no less a crisis, is it, for Hezekiah. And uh, perhaps it's moments like this when we are faced with a severe illness When the doctor gives us a diagnosis that we don't want to hear? I mean, these are the moments, aren't they, that bring us face to face with our own mortality and can be moments that really do put our trust in God to the test. And Hezekiah, as he hears this word from Isaiah that this illness will end in death, well, in verses 2 and 3, he is deeply shaken and he weeps bitterly. But he knows that he's not alone in this, and so in his tears he also prays. Verse three. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully, and with wholehearted devotion, and have done what is good in your eyes. Now that's not quite the God-centered and God-exalting prayer that we heard last week uh, from Hezekiah, which was all about God's honor and His name being praised. I mean, this is much more a desperate cry to remember him and that God would show him mercy. And in his kindness, God answers Hezekiah's prayer. And so Isaiah is given this message from verse 5. He says, Go and tell Hezekiah this is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you from this city sorry, I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. So notice here, Hezekiah is granted more than he could ever ask or imagine. Not only will his life be spared, but he'll be given an extra 15 years. But also, he's also given here the promise that Jerusalem will be spared. The city will survive a threat of death itself. And so we start to see how there's this strong parallel between the fate of the king of God's people and the city of God's people. What happens to Hezekiah on a personal level is also what will happen to Judah on a national level. They both face a deadly crisis and both, in God's mercy, will be given a reprieve. And following that good news that he'll be healed, well, Isaiah also tells us of an amazing sign to confirm that uh, God will keep that promise. So in verse 8, God says, I will make the shadow cast by the sun go back the ten steps it has gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. And so the sunlight went back the ten steps it had gone down. Now, according to verse 22, which is at the end of the chapter, Hezekiah had asked for a sign. And this is the sign that he's given. And it's a sign that he believes. Which is much different to Ahaz back in chapter 7. Remember, he was given a sign that he didn't believe. And this is quite a sign that God gives, isn't it? That the shadow would go backwards down the steps. Uh, It's a sign of time moving backwards or of Hezekiah being given more time. Now, how exactly God did that, how he moved the shadow backward like that is a bit hard to be sure about. I mean, the commentaries have all kinds of opinions. Did God reverse the rotation of the earth for a few moments? Um, He could have done that. If he wanted, he created the earth. Or was it maybe a more localised event, you know, an eclipse or some refraction of the sun, maybe. I mean, however he did it, it was something very much out of the ordinary, something very unexpected that God did. I mean, just like the defeat of the Assyrian army that we heard about last week, something miraculous. So God gives this spectacular sign, but then take a look in verse 21. um, Verse 21 of chapter 38, where we're actually told then, the mechanism of how that healing was achieved. So in verse 21 it says, Isaiah had said, prepare a poultice of figs and apply it to the boil and he will recover. So here we're told that this is the issue that was causing his illness, this boil. And Isaiah says what to do. Now we might read that and think that's some pretty primitive medicine, isn't it? Mashing up some figs and putting it on the area causing the illness and certainly I'll defer to anyone with medical training in the room but look one medical professional says that putting a sugar solution like that on an infected area is a good way of cleaning infected wounds and so what we're being told here is really just a simple application of medicine that brought the healing and I think it's very interesting here to notice here, just in this passage how how God is able to use both the extraordinary you know, to make the shadow go backwards up the steps but also how he often just uses the ordinary. This sugar solution from mashed up figs. And um, Barry Webb in his great little commentary on Isaiah he makes this very helpful point about how we as God's people should think about sickness and healing and modern, and modern medicine and really where God, God's place in all of it, when he says this. He says, There is no disjunction in scripture between miraculous and natural healing, as though God were involved in one and not the other. He is as much Lord of the soothing poultice as he is of the moving shadow. And perhaps our eyes would be more open and our hearts more thankful if only we could grasp this simple and sane biblical truth more firmly. It's worth uh, just reflecting on that. Do you get what it's saying? It means that if you've ever recovered from any illness, if you've ever experienced any kind of healing, which you know we all have, Well, it is God that you have to thank. And whether God did it through a special healing service at a church in some miraculous way, or whether he did it through medicine prescribed by your GP, well, he is Lord of both, and he is the one that we have to thank. And so Hezekiah in this chapter is firstly the suffering king. And I think he's a good model to us in how he expresses his trust in God at this terribly difficult time, given that bad diagnosis. And he's also a good model in how he now expresses his great thankfulness in response to his recovery from illness. And one of the ways that he does that is through a song, which we see next. So Hezekiah now sings of what this experience has meant to him. And uh, there's two main parts to it, the first half of the song is a lament, the second half is a song of praise. So first of all you notice from 10 to 14 he sings of the shock that he felt when he was first given that diagnosis and in that lament he sings of his anger at God, he sings of his tears, he sings of his faithful but feeble prayers. And in this lament, I think he shows us how in our sufferings that we can do that too. He shows us how in our prayers we can tell God how we really feel, how we can cast all our anxiety on him, knowing that he cares for you. And then as he experiences God's deliverance, well, he sings about that as well. In verses 15 and 16, he sings about how he will now Walk humbly before the Lord because of this trial. In verse 17, he sings, Surely it was to my benefit that I suffered such anguish. Now that is a very mature view of sickness and suffering, isn't it? To see that God somehow is at work in it for our good and our benefit. For Hezekiah, it makes him humble. In verse 17, it gives him a deeper appreciation of God's love. And also a greater gratitude for God's forgiveness. He rejoices that God has put all of his sins behind his back. And I mean, that's what you really want to know when faced with a difficult diagnosis, isn't it? That you've been forgiven. That God has put all of your sins behind his back. And so this gives Hezekiah then a greater determination to praise God. And he invites others to join him in doing that. And so the song ends with this invitation and we will sing with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord. And so through this he continues to be a good model to us. I mean rather than becoming bitter or resentful because of the illness, Hezekiah, as he reflects on this song, he recognises that this has actually been God's means to teach him something priceless. The Apostle Peter puts it like this, he says that though for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, in this you greatly rejoice because they have come to prove the genuineness of your faith which is of greater worth than gold. And that has certainly been proved here in Hezekiah. So as we come to the end of chapter 38, if we were to give Hezekiah a rating, well at this point I think he's getting a pretty solid thumbs up. He's responding to suffering with faith. He's responding to salvation with singing. Could this be the king that we're looking for? Well, if the record of King Hezekiah stopped at the end of chapter 38, that may have been a possibility. But sadly, as we continue, the record of the final episode of his life is much more of a letdown. Because see what happens now from chapter 39 and verse 1. It says, at that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Well, that's nice, isn't it? The king of Babylon hears about Hezekiah's sickness, so he sends him a get well card and a present. Very kind. And the word for gift used there, um, it's also the word used for offering. So here is a foreign nation bringing a Offering to Jerusalem. Now, Isaiah has spoken about how all the nations one day will bring offerings into the city of the Lord. Um, but disappointingly, here Hezekiah doesn't say anything about the Lord, he just accepts the gift for himself. And in verses 2 and 3, he then gives the visitors an extensive tour of his palace and all of its treasures such that it says that there is nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Well, after that, Isaiah comes along with some questions. What did these men say? Where did they come from? What did they see in your palace? Um, Hezekiah answers two out of the three questions. They came from Babylon. They saw everything. But notice he doesn't mention what they discussed, which is probably a big clue that the topic of conversation was all about forming an alliance, the exact thing that God had said not to do. And so sadly, Hezekiah is acting just like Ahaz before him. And so just like Isaiah said to Ahaz in chapter 7, he now says to Hezekiah here in verse 5 that this is going to come back to bite him. And then Isaiah speaks of a time, uh, in verses 6 and 7, of a time about 100 years into the future of when the Babylonians will return to Jerusalem, but not as allies. At that time, Judah will be just another kingdom for Babylon the Great to conquer. And they will do so very successfully, and all of the treasures of the temple, everything that Hezekiah showed off, and all of the people of Judah, they'll be carried off to Babylon in exile. And after being told that news, well, the final words from Hezekiah recorded for us in verse 8 really only serve to underline our disappointment with this king. See what he says? He says, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Now, friends, that is not the king you want. A king who's only concerned about his own welfare. A king unable to secure any lasting peace for his people. And so at the end of this chapter, and at the end of the day, we see that for all that is good in Hezekiah, well, he is only human, and he is selfish and sinful, just like the rest of us. And so at the end of his life, well, he leaves us longing for something more, for someone more. Now, it's almost Christmas time, and uh, like most things that go on break, we're going to take a break from Isaiah for a little while. Uh, We'll pick it up again sometime next year. And when we do, uh, well, then we'll begin to be introduced to a, a king to come who will not let us down. Because as we move into the second half of Isaiah, we'll start to hear of a servant of the Lord who will bring an end to the exile. And who will restore God's reign over the nations. Surprisingly, he will be described as a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. But unlike Hezekiah, he won't care only for his own welfare. Instead, he will bear our suffering. It will be by his wounds that we are healed. And also, unlike Hezekiah, he won't be spared from death. Rather, he will pour out his life unto death for us. He will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And as he does that for us, well, that is how all of our sins will be put behind God's back forever. Now, of course, I'm talking about the king who will be born in Bethlehem the king who will be given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will be the king that as he passes through death to resurrection life, he also will take us through death to everlasting life in his kingdom, a kingdom of peace and security that lasts forever. So he is the king that the world is looking for. And if there's one thing that Hezekiah did get right which we should learn from him today it's his response which is a response of singing. Because when he experienced that miraculous salvation his response was that he sang praise to God. And that's one of the things that I love about Christmas. You know Christmas is a time of singing isn't it? I don't know what it looks like in your house Uh, maybe now's the time when the Mariah Carey or the Michael Buble albums come out and uh, on repeat it's a time of singing Uh, that's what happened at the first Christmas Uh, Mary sang she sang my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior Zachariah sang he sang praise be to the Lord the God of Israel because he has come to his people and redeemed them He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. The angels sang, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace on whom his favour rests. Why did they sing? Well, they sang because the true king had come. Because today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And so how about for you this Christmas? Will this be your joy and your song? That even in this world of sin, as you remember that the true king, the better king, has come to us, well may we join with the angels and proclaim his holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to all the earth. Let me pray, and then we'll sing together. God, our Father, we do praise and thank you that in a world of suffering and sickness and sin, that you gave us your Son to come and to be the true King. Lord, we thank you that he came to redeem and to forgive and to restore. And so may we rejoice in him this Christmas as our Saviour and our King. We pray in Jesus' name.